Whoa. Hey, Rachel, check this out. What's up, Miles? Did you know there was a Dark Star movie? Well, yeah, sure. I think I thought we saw it in college. I always thought she was a pretty minor character. Wait, what? You know, Dark Star. Russian superhero controls Dark Force. There's a John Carpenter movie about her. Oh. Oh, Miles. What? You're, um... Oh, God. Okay, I don't really quite know how to break this to you, man, but the John Carpenter movie is not actually about Lania Petrovna. It's not? No, it's about stoner ennui and space beards. I mean, I can get behind that, especially because I don't know that much about Marvel's Dark Star. I mostly remember her dying back in Morrison's X-Men run. Right. She was killed by Weapon 12, or rather, she was possessed and overwritten by Weapon 12 and then killed by Phantom X. Aw, poor Lania. It's cool. She got better. Of course she did. How'd it work this time? Well, see, Darkstar's mutant powers are tied to something called the Dark Force. The Dark Force? It's extra-dimensional energy that pretty much does whatever the plot calls for. Ah. Anyway, when Darkstar died, she didn't exactly die. She retreated from her human body into the Dark Force, and Russian scientists were somehow able to create a necklace that allowed the wearer to channel Darkstar's powers, at which point they decided that the simplest thing to do would be to just give this necklace to a progression of blonde women along with the codename Darkstar and just pretend she'd never died. Sure, why not? There's precedent. So how'd she come back? Okay, the third Darkstar, Rena Stanchoff, was killed in a battle against the Diorathes. Ouch. You remember the Diorath steal, right? Uh, they impersonate their victims. Right. So the wraith that killed Darkstar took her form, then grabbed the pendant so it would have access to her powers. That can't be good. At which point the original Darkstar came back through, overrode its personality, and took over its body permanently. What? Hi, I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 79 of Rachel and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So, what do we have this time, Rachel? So what we've been covering, in terms of the big continuity stuff, is the lead-up to the fall of the mutants, which is going to be a massive crossover storyline. This week, we're actually going to take a break from that. We're going to look at a crossover miniseries, X-Men vs. Avengers, from 1987. Yeah, this is kind of a weird one. I mostly remember it sort of as a almost a companion to Fantastic Four versus X-Men, but really it's not anything like it, except that it also came out in 87 and was also the X-Men vaguely opposing another supergroup. Right, they don't actually have that much in common. For instance, Fantastic Four versus X-Men is arguably pretty good. Okay, now X-Men versus Avengers, I know it has its flaws, but I overall really enjoyed it. Miles, you enjoy everything. I mean, that's a valid point, but this is included within everything. I may be being a little bit harsh on this series, just because it really doesn't hold up well in the direct comparison to Fantastic Four versus X-Men, and also because it feels really, really at odds with the X-Men and especially the Magneto of contemporary X-Series. Yeah, and this one is really all about Magneto. He's the focus of it. He's got a bunch of super teams after him for various reasons that we'll get to. So I was thinking we could start off by talking about some of the important Magneto stuff that has led him up until this point. Well, in the Silver Age, he once wrote a ransom note in the sky with iron filings and signed his fucking name to it in cursive. Hey, hey, if you're going to do something, you should do it right. Oh, no, no, no. You mistake me. I am not criticizing this. I am discussing it as an important milestone in Magneto's long-term commitment to doing whatever he does with an excess of panache. Yes. He's always been very good at that. So, yeah, Magneto, I mean, uh, pretty much anybody who's at all familiar with the X-Men is familiar with Magneto. He's their defining villain. He was there right in X-Men number one. Defining villain or defining antagonist? Because that's a question that's going to plague him and has plagued him across the years, and I would argue for the second. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But some of the important events that have happened that are leading us up to where we are, I'd say the first really big important Magneto thing that happened kind of after his Silver Age days was an Uncanny X-Men number 150. It was a big milestone issue. I mean, you know, it was number 150, so you gotta do something for that. So that's the issue where we first learn about his backstory, right? That he's a Holocaust survivor? That's the issue where it's first addressed more than in passing, at the very least. And yeah, that's when he's essentially telling the world that if they don't disarm and cede political control of the entire planet to him, he's going to eradicate human life. On one hand, I'm really into the whole nuclear freeze angle. On the other hand, the whole absolute autocracy, not so much. Right. And so the X-Men go after him, but they don't get to him before he destroys a submarine, a Russian submarine coming after him, the Leningrad, killing everyone aboard. 
and also makes a volcano erupt, you know, using magnetism, because it can do a lot of stuff, in the city of Verakino. And in that issue, he nearly kills Kitty Pride, and this leads him to reconsider basically his stance and his approach. In the fact that his quest for what to him represents safety and security for mutants is in fact potentially costing mutant lives. Exactly. And so he sort of hangs out in the background for a long time, being ponderous up on Asteroid M, his asteroid base that he named after himself, because why wouldn't you do that? There's also a very good local rock band by the same name. There is, and if I ever have an asteroid, I'm also calling it Asteroid M because my name is Miles and I could totally get away with that. I'm into it. Okay, so asteroid base, bucket list, go. And yeah. The next really big significant thing that happens is when Warlock from the New Mutants falls out of space and hits Earth and manages to directly hit Asteroid M on his way down, thus blowing it the hell up and sending Magneto careening somehow safely toward the planet. The next year, Magneto's going to come back into the X-Men's life, and it's going to happen in context of Secret Wars 2, when Charles Xavier, who's still in bad shape from being killed and resurrected by the Warlock sewer wizard, calls Magneto in to help deal with the Beyonder who is, as everyone I assume knows by now, since he comes up a lot, everyone's favorite extra-dimensional, omnipotent, godlike gym shooter stand-in who basically ran around wreaking havoc through the Marvel Universe for a couple years. Yes. But the plot element that came out of it, the whole Magneto working with the X-Men, was kind of fascinating. And it was only a few issues before that really came to a head in Uncanny X-Men number 200. In which Freedom Force, in a singular dick move that, while technically legal, was so obnoxious and tasteless that it almost just crossed automatically to the other side, arrested Magneto on Remembrance Day at the Holocaust Memorial. Those jerks. Right? Like, seriously. Freedom Force is so bad at PR. Right? So bad. And so Magneto did end up turning himself in and going on trial in Paris in front of the world. Basically, it coming down to did the crimes he committed before he was de-aged and then re-aged really count against him? Official legal ruling? Nope. Yeah, the de-aging and re-aging thing, it's complicated, don't worry too much about it. And so, yeah, eventually that trial ends up being effectively cancelled because some supervillains show up named Fenris, and the prosecutor, while one of them is helpless, tries to brain her with a rock. God damn it, James Jaspers. Yeah. You're terrible. We're going to get way more into how terrible James Jaspers is when we get to Captain Britain and Excalibur, but trust us, he's awful. But the point is, where we are right now in continuity in 1987 is that Magneto has been, if not exonerated by the world, at least told to, you know, just go away and and don't do bad things anymore. He's been leading the Xavier Institute for quite a long time, ever since Professor Xavier left for space. That happens also at the end of Uncanny X-Men number 200, The Trial of Magneto. Xavier, who's still not recovered from dying and coming back, is dying again, and he's whisked off to space by his spacebird dethroned Empress girlfriend Lalandra and the Starjammers, who are a bunch of space pirates run by Cyclops' dad. God, summarizing this is kind of hilarious. Right. It's a great crash course in what the hell, X-Men. His last wish on Earth is, you know, Magneto, you gotta run the school, and Magneto's like, but I, I'm a supervillain, and Xavier's like, nope, you can do it, I believe in you, I'm gonna go off to space with my girlfriend. And so, long story short, Magneto's running the school. In the eyes of the world, he is a villain who maybe or maybe has not reformed given the X-Men's outlaw status. Well, he's running the school as Michael Xavier, Charles Xavier's, you know, alienated cousin. True, so that part is not common knowledge. What the world does know is that he's still out there, he's apparently been seen with the X-Men, and nobody's quite sure whether to trust him or not. And usually the way this plays out is that Magneto's out somewhere doing something, another group of superheroes sees him, goes, oh my god, it's Magneto, promptly attacks him, while he goes, guys, no, it's just a misunderstanding. Damn it. Tries to defend himself without injuring them, gets taken in, and then it's finally reestablished that, oh no, it was just a big misunderstanding. This happens over and over again with the same teams, and I'm really tired of it, which might also factor into my dislike of this particular series, because it's built very heavily on that premise. Indeed. So, a little bit of background for the series itself. This is X-Men vs. Avengers. It's a four-issue miniseries from 87. Now, what's interesting, and we're going to get to this in much greater detail later, is that the creative team shifts completely between issue three and issue four. In issue three, it's written by a guy named Roger Stern, who's done stuff all across Marvel and a bit of DC. Spider-Man, Captain America, the Avengers, uh, and then Superman and the Adam and Starman in DC. Not our favorite Starman, but the one before. And Mark Silvestri, we've of course seen doing Uncanny X-Men for quite a while in the issues we've already covered. Then in issue four, suddenly it's written by Tom DeFalco, who's best known for Spider-Man, Thor, Fantastic Four, and Spider-Girl, and drawn by Keith Pollard, who we've seen work previously on X-Factor. Now, what's interesting about this is that the writing and art switches actually happened for totally different reasons, but as Miles said, we're going to get to that later. For now, let's dive into X-Men vs. Avengers. So this opens straight up with the Avengers, with a scene of action 
destruction and peril as a meteor shower is headed towards Earth. Some of the Avengers are in space trying to break it up, but the first two we see are on Earth. With a dramatic introduction, this is Saturday, 12.30 p.m. The air over this Mansfield, Ohio shopping plaza suddenly pulses with a high-pitched whine. As a hovering Avengers Quinjet drops off two of Earth's mightiest heroes, Dr. Anthony Druid, Master of the Unknown, Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty. Wait a second. This is like, and now, on the White House lawn, Jack, this dude who does something minor but really critical in the Department of the Interior. Oh, and the president. Like, who the hell is Dr. Druid? Who the hell is Dr. Druid? The Rachel Edditon story. Show some respect for Dr. Anthony Druid. I, I used to know his middle name, but now I don't. It would have been a much more effective statement Is it Anthony? Is Dr. just his first name? Dr. Anthony Druid. Doctor's actually his middle name. He switched him around. It's really weird. Oh, man. That's not true. So, Dr. Druid, he was an Avenger, of course, in the 80s. He was an Avenger for actually only about a year and a half. Not a very long-lived one. Like, because he's ridiculous? Well, he's kind of great. I mean, he's, he's literally backup Doctor Strange, right? Yeah, he was trained by the Ancient One. He was looking into ancient Druidic mythology, and the Ancient One was like, well, I don't know about that stuff or care about it, but I need a new Sorcerer Supreme if this Steven guy doesn't work out. Serious question. Does the Ancient One recruit entirely based on thematically appropriate last names because that's the impression I'm getting at this point. Very possibly. However, Druid was not Dr. Druid's original last name. I mean, it's been retconned so that it was. Wait, did he change it? No, but Marvel did. Originally, when he first showed up in like the early 60s, he was Dr. Droom, and he was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. And Dr. Droom, maybe it just sounded too much like Dr. Doom, maybe it just sounded dumb. But even in reprints of the old stuff, Dr. Droom has actually been edited to have always been named Dr. Druid. And he is a middle-aged, slightly paunchy gentleman no, with dude's male totally pattern baldness. Shape. It really varies on how he's drawn from page to page and panel to panel. Oh, okay. um, he wears red long underwear and a really big fancy robe. And I feel like he would be a great, like, really easy, obscure cosplay. Uh, he totally Because would. he just looks like a normal dude. He doesn't really have that, you know, fancy, I have a blow dryer and so much Aquanet going on at any given time that it's effectively a helmet and square jaw and no one actually ever stands like this thing going on. Like, he, he looks like a regular dude. And I feel like this is something that cosplayers should be jumping on. He's got a pretty sweet little beardlet thing going on. He does. And his costume looks really comfy. Basically, it's a red sort of singlet thing, but it's not super skin tight. Like, you could just, like, hang out dressed as Dr. Druid, like, in your house on the weekends, and you'd be totally comfy. It would basically be, like, be wearing pajamas and a bathrobe. Well, I know my weekend plans for the rest of my life. Also, I'm going to have telepathy. Those two things. Yes, he does have telepathy. Is that his only power? Does he have anything else going on? He seems to specialize in sort of mind control and hypnosis, clouding men's minds like the shadow so that they can't see him and, you know, commanding them to do other things. The shadow is much, much more stylish. Well, I will go to the mat for that. Than most people, to be fair. In, but in, yes. Yes. So I'll also go to the mat for the shadow movie. Uh -huh. Which I know is a controversial stance, but I really enjoyed it. So anyway, yes, we have Captain America and we have Dr. Druid. We also have a few other Avengers. We have my personal favorite Avenger, Thor. At this point in his very gaudy armor that he was wearing when his healing got messed up by Hela. I think we've addressed that in past episodes. We have She-Hulk, who is really just in it to punch a meteor. Like, she's really explicit about it. She just really fucking wants to punch a meteor. And I respect that. You know, like we were saying, bucket list. And there's also Black Knight, who's a guy who has been cursed with his sword that kind of gives him dark impulses. Is this a metaphor? I mean, probably. I don't okay. know if it's that metaphor. He also has a sweet robot horse, much like Apocalypse's riders, except his looks, does this look any more like a horse? His actually isn't very horsey either. No, no. And then we have Captain Marvel. Now, this is Monica Rambeau, specifically, who is an awesome character that doesn't get nearly enough love in the Marvel Universe. She is super badass. She's also basically omnipotent with her power set at this point. Yeah, she can, like, transform into energy and do whatever, basically, and moves at the speed of light. Yeah, just generally generic anything with energy powers are the most amazingly plot-convenient hand-wavy power set of all time, and she will deliver. Yes. So yeah, we have our six Avengers, and they are attempting to save a Kmart from a meteor. Which they do. Dr. Druid uses his mind control powers to get everyone peacefully and safely out. Thor uses hurricane force winds to wait, slow wait, the Wait, 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 wait. We have a procedure for this sort of thing, Rachel. That's right, it is time for Miles's Thorner. Just so I can say this line. The call has gone out. Avengers, assemble! And once again, the mighty Thor has answered. If these meteors pose a danger to the people of Midgard, star, caption, Earth, then by my hammer, they shall be no more. Insert some kind of big thundery sound effect here. Let the heavens resound with the fire and fury of the storm. Let the lightning not cease until the thunder god says, Enow! 
like some kind of siren noise that he's going to make? I think it's like Norse for enough, which is to say Shakespearean English, which the Norse used in the 80s and Marvel for enough. But it's awesome, so I will accept it. In any case, Thor manages to slow the descent of the Quinjet, which has been disabled by a chunk of meteor. Using hurricane force winds, it lands safely. But there's a problem, and that is that the meteor is stuck to the Quinjet. Because this isn't just any meteor. This is a highly magnetic meteor. It looks really weird. Like, there's just this big chunk of rock stuck to the top of this plane. But She-Hulk does get her wish of getting to punch a meteor. Yeah, I I can just imagine, though. It's got to be really uncomfortable for the plane. It's like having bats in your hair, you know? It's like, ah, get them off, get them off, get this meteor off my plane. At least that's what it would be like for me. Well, then. Yeah, so they have managed to save the Kmart, thanks, guys, and some government men show up from the government and uh, quickly realize, wait a minute, something is abnormal about this. It's magnetic, it's got this weird circuitry stuff on some of its surfaces. And, as it turns out, half of it is scheduled to crash down somewhere on the other side of the planet. And to handle this, the U.S. is doing something highly, highly atypical for 1987. They are coordinating with the USSR. And speaking of the USSR, as we know, they have their own superheroes, some of whom are sometimes supervillains, and we're going to meet some of them right now. These are the Soviet super soldiers. And we meet the Soviet super soldiers in a scenario entirely unrelated to the meteor. They are trying to stop a train from derailing. They don't do a very good job of it. So who is among this team? All right. So first we have this dude named Vanguard. He's got a power to just sort of repel energy. You know, whatever. It's very powerful. It's not very interesting. But what I like about him is that he focuses it through a tiny hammer and sickle that he holds. Well, he's on theme. Yeah, right. You know, he's from Russia and therefore his powers have to be based on Russia. Look, Captain America's shield is a big American flag with a star in the middle. I don't think we've really got a leg to stand on here. Well, I suppose that's true. Vanguard is also known for being kind of a dick. However, who's awesome is his sister, Darkstar. Right, we covered Darkstar somewhat in the cold open. Darkstar is Elenia Petrovna. She is a mutant. Actually, they're both mutants. And she can tap into something called the Dark Force, which again is sort of hand-wavy energy from another dimension, from the Dark Dimension. It kind of reminds me of Invisible Woman's force fields, the way that she tends to use it. Kinda. Yeah. We also have the Titanium Man. Now, this is not the original Titanium Man, who is a villain we've seen in the Marvel Universe before. This is a new one. It's really a robot suit with this dude named Gremlin inside. Gremlin being a character who was previously a Hulk villain, more recently an Iron Man villain, and currently inside a big green robot. Which brings us to my favorite of the team, and that is Ursa Major. Ursa Major is a mutant, and his mutant power is that he can turn into a fucking bear. So basically, this dude's thing is he's part of a superhero team, and he just runs around as a grizzly bear all the time. That's his deal. The end. Fuck you. He's a bear. Talking grizzly bear. He doesn't say a lot, though. Well, you know, he's a bear of few words. I love this. I think we covered this a long time ago that I feel like the X-Men would be fundamentally improved. We, we, oh, we talked about Spider-Man and his amazing friends because Thunderbird could randomly turn into a bear in that series. Yes. maybe. Yeah, and bear. about how maybe that's a secondary thing. Maybe all mutants can also just turn into bears. They just have to know how to tap into it. It could be, or it could be so commonplace that no one even bothers talking about it. They're like, well, of course I could turn into a bear. Why wouldn't I be able to turn into a bear? This guy talks about it. This guy revels in it. This guy celebrates it. And this is Ursa Major, and he is a goddamn bear. How do you fight Ursa Major? Like, I feel like I've heard some of this. Like, you're supposed to sort of spread your arms and your legs wide and make yourself look really big. Or play dead. We are so fucked if we ever actually get attacked by a bear, Miles. I really hope we never get attacked by a bear. I mean, I already did, but like more now. Wait, Uh, you got attacked by a bear? No, not that I know of. Okay. I feel like you'd remember that. You'd think. I know what to do with alligators and crocodiles, but I can never remember which is which. I know how to tell which is an alligator and which is a crocodile. I just can't remember which one you can get away from by running zigzag. I think crocodiles. Guys, I don't think we should ever go outside. This is one of those things that you actually learn like as part of like regular life growing up in South Florida, because this happened when we were in school. The whole bus loop got shut down periodically because there'd be like an alligator hanging out. This did happen. It's very true. Florida is terrible. Never go there. (laughs) If you already live there, you should probably go somewhere else. Maybe not Russia or Canada, because Russia has this bear guy and Canada has like everything. To be fair, in terms of just straight up wildlife that will kill you dead, Australia is definitely worse. But Florida is pretty bad. Australia has got reavers them too yeah okay so um world uh, advice aside the soviet super soldiers are trying to stop this derailing train and they're given an assist by a character that we x fans have seen once before and that asshole is crimson dynamo we met him for the first time in x factor annual number one where he fought our intrepid heroes this time he is here to ask for help but the soviet super soldiers are reluctant to grant it because he's a dick and also because he works for the kgb with whom they happen to be at odds yeah russian intergovernmental rivalries and all that well i get the impression in this series at least that i'm not that familiar with the team but that the soviet super soldiers they are set up to basically be counterparts to the avengers where they work with their government but 
they're regularly at odds with some of the more extreme factions of it, that they're primarily superheroes who have the official branding and have the official support, but are kind of perennially frustrated by the political end to their jobs. Yeah, as they all meet up, now we've met the Avengers, we've met the Soviet super soldiers. What about the X-Men? Well, the X-Men are not fighting anything. The X-Men are hanging around on a dock in swimsuits watching TV, except for Wolverine, who's wearing both a swimsuit and a cowboy hat because he's Wolverine. Like you do. I mean, I'm not going to tell him to not do that. Oh, and Magneto, who's dressed in business casual. Yeah, well, he's a smooth looking dude. And so, yeah, they're just sort of hanging out and relaxing for once. And it's kind of cool to see. I also do feel compelled to point out that the bathing suits the female characters are wearing are really, like, really tiny. This is very much a byproduct of the era, but it's also very, very much a Mark Silvestri thing. And it's something we're going to keep on seeing for as long as he's on X-Men. Something else I feel obliged to point out regarding those swimsuits is that there's at least one panel where he forgets to ink or the colorist has colored over the edges of, um... The, I, I don't know what the, the technical term for this, the hip part of, of the bottom part of, of Rogue's bikini, and it really looks like she's just freeballing. Uh, true. She's got this, I don't like, know if that's, that's, I don't, is, is there a term for the, the lady equivalent of shirt cocking? Uh, free labia-ing? That doesn't sound right. I don't know, but it, her swimsuit looks like pubes is the point. It, it does. Um, apparently in reprints of this issue, they have uh, fixed that, which is probably for the best. Uh, so yeah, they're all hanging out and we do get nice little character moments with each of them. And that's actually something I really like about Roger Stern's handling of this miniseries is that he's got a lot of characters to deal with and he gives each of them kind of their moment in terms of combat, in terms of social interaction. And so you get to know everyone pretty well, which in a crossover like this is good because chances are you're either an X-Men fan or an Avengers fan and don't know the other team very well. So we get, you know, Dazzler singing dancing, Wolverine being grumpy and cutting a fly in half with his claws. Well, the fly was bothering him. He's on vacation. Havoc doing what Summerses do at parties and wandering off to brood. Okay, wait a minute. Uh, Havoc and brooding. This has been bothering me for a long time. The entire reason Havoc joined the X-Men was to warn them about the brood. And like, no mention has been made of the brood since then. And it's not going to be for a really long time. We talked about it when we covered that issue, but it's so weird just having that sort of hanging in the background. And we know about it, but he's apparently forgotten. What the hell, Havoc? I don't know. The brood are pretty scary. They're watching TV because apparently bringing a TV down to an area with a lot of splashing and water is the X-Men's idea of a good way to relax. And Storm, you know, has a moment of seeing Thor on the TV and bemoaning the loss of her powers. So if you're playing the game along with us, take a drink. I actually really like when stuff like this happens, because when you get down to it, Storm and Thor, the weather part of their powers are pretty damn similar. They are, yeah. And so I could absolutely see that. I mean, and that and the fact that Storm was the Thunder God for a while back in the Asgardian Wars. I like that the comics Well, and she was worshipped as a goddess on Earth, too. She might not have had the same pedigree as one as Thor did, but... It's very, very easy to see them as counterparts. Yeah, so I really like when that's acknowledged. I think that's a cool little uh, crossover story bit. Agreed. And what they're watching on TV is the Avengers Kmart asteroid battle that we opened with. Now, they all think that's pretty cool, but one of them knows there's something more going on, and that is inappropriately business casual Magneto, who's, I think this is the first time I've seen him breaking out of his pink and purple color scheme. I'm pretty sure he's wearing fuchsia boxers under that. He'd fucking better be. Maybe fuchsia socks than He's wearing like green and yellow, although they're going to get the colors wrong in the flashback in the next issue, which I kind of love. Yeah, well, if it's not fuchsia, who cares? He recognizes it as wreckage from Asteroid M. He'd thought it was completely destroyed when Warlock smashed into it, sending him to Earth. But no, apparently there are a couple chunks left and they are now impacting the planet. Now, Asteroid M, having been a supervillain base, is chock full of dangerous super weaponry. And Magneto feels like he really needs to go either salvage some of that or at least keep it out of the hands of world governments because we've seen what they do with super weaponry. Come on. But he's concerned that if he tells the X-Men where he's going, they're going to be suspicious. So instead, to avoid arousing suspicion, he sneaks away, very obviously, in broad daylight. It's like, dude, you wear fuchsia. You're not stealthy. Don't try. Well, he's not wearing fuchsia at the time, but no, he is not stealthy. And the X-Men, of course, see him going away and figure out where he's headed. They are not the only ones because, as it turns out, the broadcast is, to some extent, a trap. The government is trying to lure Magneto to the second meteor site so that he can be intercepted by, basically, the SSS. The Americans and the USSR are working together on this whole thing. And their plan is to lure Magneto out and assassinate him. 
Now, the Avengers, they're not much for assassination, but upon realizing what's going on, they do agree that this dude probably should be brought in to be tried for real this time. Beforehand, they do a great montage of all of Magneto's terrible crimes. He has done a lot, it's true. And then Captain America compares him to Hitler, which kind of ruins the Avengers' moral high ground. Well, okay, if anybody can make Hitler references, if anybody can Godwin a conversation, I feel like it's probably the guy that punched Hitler. But I feel like that particular right is perfectly canceled out by the fact that it's really, really fucking inappropriate to do that in reference to a Holocaust survivor. And Captain America has done this repeatedly. Like, he does this every time he fights Magneto, and it never goes well, and it's such a dick move. Like, just stop. There are so many reasons to dislike Magneto if you're Captain America. Just don't pull that one in. Come on, dude. You are better than that. (laughs) Totally valid. So Magneto does, in fact, go to Campuchia, which is the area of Southeast Asia where the second chunk of Asteroid M, it looks like it's going to fall. And for those of you looking for modern geographic bearings, that's the area now known as Cambodia. Yes, it was a few years before that was renamed Cambodia. And the Avengers show up, he's intercepted by them, and he fights back. Now, he does make a token effort to explain himself, but not really very much. He doesn't really so much try to explain himself as try to go, guys, guys, stop, let me tell you what's going on. I'm not actually here to fight you. And they just don't even give him a chance to talk. Yeah. Now, of course, we see this all the time in comic books. You'll have a couple superhero teams and almost every fight they have is because of some kind of a misunderstanding. And sure enough, that's what's going on here. Right. Because it sells issues. There's a great nod to this on an Excalibur cover years later. Yep. Now, okay, one little detail I do want to point out. So they're in Kampuchea, they're in uh, what's now Cambodia, and they're right near these ruins, the ruins of the famous Angkor Wat. Now, Angkor Wat, I'm sure it's got a lot of historical significance, but what makes it jump out to me is that it's one of the areas you could go to in the amazing Super Nintendo action RPG Illusion of Gaia that I miss a lot. So... I know more about its history, which is really easy to find, but my main association with it is actually from a different video game, and it's such a strong association that it like takes me specifically to the visual and the audio of rolling it up in Katamari Damacy. Oh yeah, when you get really big and can roll up world artifacts? Yeah, there are a lot of like wonders of the world and geographic locations that I now primarily associate with that. Like Every previous bit of knowledge and association is like, it's still there, but it's kind of stuck into the back corner under a heavy layer of na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. <laughs> Well, even though this fight scene does lack a giant ball of stuff pushed by a tiny prince, it's still still pretty good. But it doesn't last for too long because pretty soon the X-Men show up, having followed Magneto, and say, hey, if you want him, you gotta go through us. And then, moments later, the Soviet super soldiers show up and say, hey, both of you teams, stand aside, he's ours. And so that's how the first quarter of X-Men vs. Avengers ends, with a three-way standoff over Magneto, who just wants his rock back. Also, Vanguard rides Crimson Dynamo through the air like a rocket horse. That's true. It's probably not intended to be that comical, but it's really awesome. kind of great. Yeah. Okay, so from there, I mean, yeah, it's just a giant three-way fight. And dude, Mark Silvestri and Roger Stern together do make an excellent, excellent fight scene. Um, So I want to talk about this scene because uh, one of the things that I think it's important to focus on uh, when you're talking about comics is the things that are unique to comics, like how you can create visual flow using art. So there's a two-page spread of all three teams fighting and all the characters are doing cool stuff. And in the foreground, we see Vanguard throwing his hammer, you know, like from his hammer and sickle, from the very left side of the left page. And it goes all the way across both pages only to be caught on the right side of the right page by She-Hulk. So not only is it part of the action, but it's also guiding the reader's eye across so you sort of catch each detail from left to right. That kind of splash fight scene where you've got, you know, a big melee going on across two pages is a great opportunity to play with some of the sort of sillier aspects of cartooning and comic storytelling, ways to convey motion and time and movement, even in a single image. I love that stuff. It's so fun. Absolutely. And so the fight doesn't really last all that long, unfortunately, because Magneto and the X-Men run the hell away. And Magneto explains to the X-Men, you know, guys, I got to go retrieve Asteroid M. They're like, dude, no, this is a bad idea. You don't need to do that. And he's like, fine, Magneto out and just leaves the Blackbird and goes off again to do it himself. And this is interesting what happens from here, because Wolverine is the one who's by far the angriest at Magneto doing this. Now, if you'll recall, Wolverine was probably the biggest advocate for Magneto when Magneto first joined up with the X-Men, when the X-Men's greatest foe started started hanging out with them. Because, you know, Wolverine, of all people, knows that tigers can indeed change their stripes, and sometimes you need to give someone a second chance. Also that people aren't tigers. Uh, Wolverine does know that too. Just bears. People are bears. The Wolverine story. Na, 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 na. Listeners, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here with us. We would not have wanted to share this moment with anyone else. Yes. Uh, I think okay. we're all better people now. 
Yep. Yeah, Wolverine is not ready to forgive Magneto for this. He feels like we extended our hand, we gave this dude a second chance, and now he's just going back, apparently, to his villainous ways, like spurning what we offered, and that's a dick move. Now, as it turns out, Magneto's plan is to destroy the remains of Asteroid M. They're full of dangerous weaponry, they're full of explosives, but then he's going to set magnetic charges of some sort throughout, blow the place up. But in going through the asteroid to do that, he comes across an item that gives him pause. That is his old helmet. I love the way this is uh, shown because we have these two panels as he's going through talking to himself. There are some parts of my past that are best left dead, and, and then he sees the helmet and uniform and just sort of trails off, buried. That is indeed a stylin' helmet, Magneto. And a stylin' cape. And I mean, this is, he's still kind of going around in the fuchsia disco getup right now, which is not great. He does decide to retrieve his helmet and he wears it with his big V-neck thing and it does not work. It just really, really doesn't work. So I kind of get where he's coming from here. He does, however, decide he's still going to blow the asteroid. He sets charges. And just then, of course, the Avengers attack. And what I love here, so he's put on his helmet, right? Like, not a minute ago. And as soon as the Avengers attack, he puts up a force field and just yells, Bah! Mere physical force cannot breach my magnetic fields! The helmet makes him Silver Age Magneto! I know, I love it. Like, all of a sudden he's yelling, Bah? When was the last time he yelled, Bah? You know, honestly, I kind of missed the Bah. I feel like the Wolks could tell you because they were running a blog for a while tracking instances of the word Bah in comics. Oh, right, that's true. And, Uh, well, if that's still around, we will find it and we will link to it, because there are a lot of them. And so, once again, giant fight scene. Now, I will say, there are a lot of fight scenes in this series. Now, whether or not that's your style will vary. For me, like, I tend to like the more character-focused stuff, but a well-done fight scene, or even, like, ten well-done fight scenes, I have nothing bad to say about that. I respect that. (laughs) Well, regardless, it's a great fight scene. There are some good wonk thud ploosh sound effects as She-Hulk and Rogue tumble around into a lake. Ooh, I really like wonk. Yeah, wonk. That doesn't get used a lot. It's a good one. The Black Knight, uh, as he's fighting Logan, says, save it for your fan club, Wolverine. Oh man, that's a really good burn. It kind of doesn't make sense, but it's great anyway. Save it for your fan club, Miles. Oh, I have no response to that. I'm sorry. (laughs) And so eventually Magneto's like, dudes, this thing is going to explode. Like, stop fighting so we can make that not happen. And Captain Marvel does her best to fly through and disarm all the charges. She is too late, and all the heroes are just barely saved by Magneto throwing up a magnetic force field. While they're still stunned, Magneto and the X-Men jump in the Blackbird and fly away. Unbeknownst to them, an Avenger has snuck along. They have been infiltrated by the one, the only, Dr. Anthony Druid. I love that we call him Dr. Anthony Druid every single time. That's just way funnier than Dr. Druid. Yeah, he's like Animax the Extreme. You have to say the whole thing or it doesn't work. I think so. Yeah, Dr. Druid watches all of them and realizes these people have a lot of conflict going on about how to respond to the situation. Maybe we can use that. In the meantime, I'm just going to stay invisible and luxuriate in my comfy red union suit and big blue cape. Now, the way that the Avengers managed to stop the Triple S's was by hypnotizing Darkstar into using her powers to restrain the other members of her team. What they did not account for was the fact that Gremlin is a dude in a power suit. Even if you restrain the power suit, the dude can still get out. So he does this. He shakes her back to consciousness. And the Triple S's discuss the situation. It's very quickly established that Crimson Dynamo is really not quite on the same side as everyone else. Yeah, he's talking about how awful mutants are. And one of the SSS's points out, "Uh, you know, we're pretty much all mutants, dude, right? And he says, oh, well, I mean, like, you know, some mutants, like the bad ones. I mean, you guys are fine. He totally backpedals. Some of my friends are mutants, okay? Like, I totally dated a mutant in college once. Right. It's so deliciously awkward. He is awkward. that guy. He it really should is. be. Crimson Dynamo is horrible. He is just not an okay dude. The X-Men, meanwhile, manage to detect Dr. Druid on their ship. Rogue absorbs his powers before he can finish um, telling the Avengers what's going on. And unfortunately, though, the X-Men are still forced to make an emergency landing because towards the end of the fight, the Blackbird was damaged and they end up in Singapore. They ditch Dr. Druid, but he's then able to get in touch with the Avengers and the Triple S intercepts the call and they're pretty much all right back where they started, except in Singapore, I guess, which is not quite where they started. This does keep happening. Like the X-Men run away and then almost immediately both the Avengers and the Soviet super soldiers find them and there's a fight and the X-Men run away and repeat, repeat, repeat. There's something incredibly cartoonish about this whole setup. Like it seems like the kind of thing whose interstitial segments should largely play out in fast forward to Yakety Sacks. What it reminds me of is that old Hanna-Barbera thing where you'd have a hallway full of doors and people would just like run back and forth between the doors. I associate that primarily with the movie Yellow Submarine, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, right. So that plus Yakety Sacks plus the Avengers, the X-Men and the Soviet Super Soldiers. Marvel, call us. They're never going to call. 
our PR contact at Marvel is like deleting our numbers from their phone right now. <laughs> what have I done? I shouldn't have meddled. <laughs> that's exactly what Magneto said. Oh, that's Get it? that's terrible. So, yes, um, they're all in Singapore, and the X-Men have basically gone undercover. The Blackbird is screwed up, and they pretty much need to lay low until they can find a way out. And, of course, the Avengers and the Soviets are there, and Vanguard is actually the first one to find some of the X-Men. Now, he's quickly disabled by Rogue, who kisses him to absorb his powers. What I love and hate about this scene here is that his powers are so great that Rogue blows through her disguise that she was wearing over her costume, thus leaving only the black bodysuit. So here's a question I have for you, Rachel. We know that whenever a female character's costume, or for that matter, a character in general's costume, is blown off, people should take a drink. With this, only half of Rogue's costume is blown off. So what's your judgment? What's your verdict? Oh, gosh. See, man... I'm I'm kind of torn on this one because is the trope the loss of the costume or is the trope the resultant nudity? Because if it's the former, they should drink. If not, they shouldn't. Ah, I am going to bypass this and say that the drink usually involves a receptacle. We're going to just bypass it straight from the bottle, kids. Straight from the bottle. Don't try this at home. This is purely recreational. We do not recommend it. Look, if the bear stuff wasn't obvious enough, you should not follow our advice ever. <laughs> That's right. We make bad life choices and we recommend bad life choices. <laughs> and therefore... So, yeah, the X-Men book a ship to leave Singapore, finally. And in the hold, we start hearing about Magneto's plan, as he thinks to himself. And that is to use the mind control circuits that are in his old helmet. Whoa, 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 whoa. The mind control circuits that are in his old helmet. Oh, this is some Silver Age goodness right here. So, back in the day, a lot of people forget that Magneto was effectively a telepath. And that was later revealed to be because of the circuitry that he had built into his helmet to have telepathic-ish powers. Originally, it was explained primarily by telepathy working on magnetic waves, which is a way better explanation. <laughs> they uh, have moved away from that explanation. I should, uh, I should qualify that by better, I don't actually mean more plausible, I mean more entertaining. Yes. Because comic books. And so Magneto's realizing that with this technology he's found, if he tweaks it right, he may in fact be able to eradicate all prejudice from the globe to do with this big telepathic and presumably magnetic pulse that would targetedly remove people's bigotry, specifically toward mutants, but also in general. Huh, that's ethically complex. But it's a very Magneto plan, and things like this are why I will absolutely defend this series, because Magneto overall has always been a guy that wants the best for the world. Now, his well, vision... he wants the best for mutants, and the world is where they keep their stuff. Right. And, you know, you can't fully blame him because mutants are horribly persecuted, and it's the methods that he uses to get there that are always suspect. But this is still really big. I mean, he's talking about doing something that potentially has good immediate effect. I get the idea behind it, but it's still brainwashing a lot of the world's population. In fact, we've seen in Magneto himself... The backlash when things like this reverse. That's very true, yeah. And, and he so, just doesn't consider any of that because, you know, it's a miniseries and he's a superhero. Well, and it's, it's a very oversimplified version of Magneto, but at the same time, I feel like it does get to the core of the character, which is what we were just talking about. So for me, I find this interesting. Now, he doesn't have time to explore this train of thought very far because that thing we were talking about, about how every time the X-Men run away, the SSS or the Avengers find them immediately. Yeah, that. And uh, Wolverine is furious at this because Wolverine apparently has a really good working knowledge of maritime law, which he refers to as the law of the sea, which I love because it kind of implies that it's going to be reinforced by a fucking kraken. Hold it, bub. Where do you get off board in a Dutch ship? You're breaking the laws of the sea. I wonder if Wolverine's a maritime lawyer like in Arrested Development. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say definitely. I'm going to say that he just has friends who are kraken. Well, okay, that's legit as well. I'm and pretty into this idea, like Wolverine and his weird undersea friends. Uh -huh. They can teach us valuable lessons about conservation. Oh, man, it can be like a Saturday morning cartoon where there's the little lesson at the end of each episode. Yeah. Okay, uh, again, Marvel. And they enforce us. maritime law. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with this concept whatsoever. It's immediately saleable and will be extremely successful. This is great. So you know how Marvel now is restarting a bunch of books and series, and obviously they should just let us redesign the X-Line because we would make it so awesome. It's like Wolverine crossed with Aquaman crossed with She-Hulk. David Wynn, who's our illustrator, and I were talking on Twitter this morning about the idea of doing a series about Omega Red struggling with existential ennui. I like this plan. Right? And he can use his mutant death factor. It'll be great. So what makes this fight scene a little bit more interesting than the last, like, 35 or however many we've seen is that Crimson Dynamo, while looking for the X-Men, starts interrogating some of the sailors who are just sort of, you know, doing their job sailing on the ship and manages while doing so to blow a large hole in the hull of a ship. During this time, he also explicitly tells the Triple S's, who are concerned about, you know, the loss of life, that anyone who would potentially even unknowingly harbor Magneto doesn't deserve to live. Why does anyone work with Crimson Dynamo? He's terrible. 
is that a violation of maritime law or is that just being a dick? I'm a little unsure about that one. I'm going to say both. I feel like maritime law could probably cover issues of honor, too. So the other thing I want to point out about this fight scene... We're going to get angry letters from so many maritime lawyers. I'm sure there's at least like five who listen to the show who are just already typing out, um, actually, guys, come on, seriously, this is a real field. Rachel Edden and Miles Stokes are not experts on maritime law. Or anything else, except for the X-Men. We are totally experts. That's why there's not an E. Mm-hmm. It's specific to X-Men. It is. So, yes, the other cool thing that happens in this fight is that Vanguard tries to throw his hammer and sickle hammer at Thor, and Thor just throws Mjolnir right through it. And it's very satisfying as a Thor fan. So here's something that I would like to posit with regards to this. And that is that multi-team fight scenes are fundamentally better when they take place on boats. I mean, I won't disagree, but do you have other examples? Not off the top of my head, but I'm looking at aspects of this specific fight scene. And see, this sounds like the lead into a joke, but it's actually not. Because when you've got a big melee like that, space and use of space is a big issue. And the environment becomes a really important player. On a boat, you've at the same time got a very, very weaponizable setting, but also one that you have to keep intact. And it forces people to interact with both each other and their environment in ways they otherwise wouldn't. It also contains it in ways that are really well suited to comics as a storytelling medium. But fights are better. I think that's actually a really valid point. I've never thought of that before. Yeah, no, I told you it wasn't actually a joke. Like, I think boats are a really effective setting for superhero fights. Well, and one of the consequences of this being a boat fight is that as it's sinking, Ursa Major, who, as we have discussed, is a goddamn bear, is having a hell of a time getting out. You know, he's drowning. And so She-Hulk and Havoc try to lift him out of the water, but he's a really big bear and it's hard to pull him through what holes there are in the hull. Finally, and somewhat grudgingly, he shifts to his human form which is still fairly substantial, and Hell is super naked, and Havoc's like, why didn't you do that before? And Ursa Major replies, I am vulnerable this way. To which She-Hulk, while leering from below, as only She-Hulk can, responds, no kidding. Yeah, so Ursa Major's mutant power, I'm gonna say, is not to turn into a bear, but is in fact, he's a bear that can turn into a naked human. But only a naked human. If he puts on clothing, does he turn back into a bear? Can he only be a human while naked? He just dies. If he ever wears clothes, he dies. He's cursed. It's very complex. There's an issue about it that I have read a long time ago. You know that comics that exist in your dreams aren't canon, right? Anyway, the teams, except for Crimson Dynamo, work together to evacuate the ship's sailors and passengers safely. Darkstar uses her dark force to make a raft and evacuate everyone. They all work together. Crimson Dynamo ultimately is captured by his former teammates, actually. Understandably, because they didn't like him to begin with. They were right. They will trust their own judgment so much more after this. And he did, to be fair, almost kill, like, hundreds of people for really no reason. Well, going after Magneto, because Magneto had killed hundreds of people, which is really ironic. The ends don't justify the means, Crimson Dynamo. The more you know. That's actually kind of a major theme of this series, because it's something that Magneto is going to think a lot about in issue four, along with some major character shifts. Magneto, as it turns out, is also not with the group. He is on the deck of another ship, headed back to Singapore, looking generally kind of shady. Now, here's where things get weird. I mean, things were already pretty weird, what with the bear that can turn into a naked human and stuff like that. But here's where the entire creative team shifts. Now, as you may recall, issues one through three of X-Men vs. Avengers were written by Roger Stern and drawn by Mark Silvestri. Mark Silvestri had to leave because he became, around this time, the regular artist on X-Men. He was too busy. He couldn't finish the series. Roger Stern, on the other hand, was replaced for an entirely different reason. Yeah, he was basically fired off the series. He had originally intended for this series to be Magneto's return to villainy. In issue number four, as he was going to write it, Magneto would have ended up deciding to use his helmet, would have revealed his true colors as a villain, and would no longer have been associated with the X-Men. He would have been like a supervillain straight up again. Marvel editorial disagreed with this decision for a lot of reasons, first among which, in my opinion, is that it was kind of dumb. But we're going to get back to that and discuss it more in detail and sort of compare and contrast what the series did with what it could have done when we get to the end of issue four. Now, where this issue starts is pretty weird. It's a pretty drastic tonal shift, and it's also certainly a drastic shift in plot. The Avengers are barging in on a Singapore government office where there's a representative from the international community. We never really find out exactly what part of it. I believe it's specifically an international unit that's been given jurisdiction over Magneto, lowercase unit, not unit, the acronym, which is a specific agency. This is a guy who's only ever identified as Mr. Ronalds, and I assume that we are supposed to trust him because he has Nick Fury hair. It's possible. But they're carefully releasing information onto the news to help them track down Magneto without talking at all about Asteroid M. And the Avengers barge in saying, hey, this isn't cool. We need to arrest this dude and you're trying to get him killed. What is going on here? 
The Avengers are there. The X-Men are also in Singapore, although as it turns out, since their last appearance, they've just randomly been arrested and taken into custody by the Singaporean government. They're hanging out in an armored car, looking generally kind of bored and irritated. Did you notice something special about the scene? Something really unusual? I'm not sure what you're referring to. Well, think about where they are. They're inside a very small enclosed metal space. What doesn't happen? Oh, Storm doesn't really seem to care at all. Good point. Yeah, Storm gives no fucks. Go Storm. Well, she's come a long way. And eventually they get tired of waiting and they rip out through the hull of the armored car and Rogue just sort of flies away with it. It's really weird to have all the stuff just sort of have happened since the end of the last issue. Like it feels like the tires on the plot car are screeching very loudly as the plot car takes a hard left turn. The plot vehicle also seems to maybe be careening toward a cliff. But the question at this point for me, I guess, is whether it will turn out to be a plot airplane and take off from there. So Magdino's wandering around uh, Singapore. He's sort of undercover. And eventually, when a civilian identifies him, the government troops jump him, and he runs the hell away, only to find a few new mutants who sort of help spirit him to safety. One of them, as it turns out, finds him because she's able to track mutants. The others have various powers, and they take him to a galleria, a crowded building that's run by a businessman who goes by the name The Light, which is kind of a creepy name for a businessman. This guy has picked it because presumably his powers deal with illumination. He can tell whether or not people are lying. And The Light is the leader of a large, large group of mutants who've been living under ground who've been gathering and who've been largely inspired by Magneto's early years and Magneto's resistance against what they see as human tyranny. Now, this part I think is really cool because one of the most fascinating things about a character like Magneto, who goes between kind of the light side and the dark side repeatedly, is that he has to deal with the consequences of who he used to be. He has to deal with these people who were inspired by ideals that used to be his entire life and that now he no longer supports. And that's awkward and that's interesting and I like it. Well, not only that, but people who tend to be marginalized and oppressed and are inspired by those ideals, which creates a really challenging situation and raises a really interesting question. To what extent is Magneto answerable to or responsible for people whose actions, whose ideas, and whose philosophies who've been using ideals that he's rejected as their primary means to push back against legitimate tyranny? Right. And that's something I wish this miniseries had had a little more time to explore. Now, I do think a variant of that is explored very well in Cullen Bunn's Magneto run, where we see essentially a cult of people who have been severely injured by Magneto, who now almost, I'm not going to say worship him, but certainly revere him. Well, and the mutants who gather around him on Genosha, that's probably where I would have gone more immediately in in the more recent Magneto series. But it's something we've seen come up again and again, and complicated further and further as Magneto goes back and forth between hero and villain. Now, meanwhile, he manages to convince this group that no, the thing to do is to focus on safety for mutants. We're not actually going to commit genocide, okay, y'all? Just as he's telling them this, the government does find him. Once again, in X-Men versus Avengers, if someone is chasing you, they will find you within approximately four minutes from when you escaped from them. And they will definitely bust through a wall instead of using a door. Hey, maybe they should join X-Factor. Apparently. Yeah, they can be the Singapore branch. And Magneto, at this point, is just like, you know what? Screw it. I was going back and forth on whether to do my eradicating prejudice using my technological helmet idea. I'm just going to do it. It is too messed up for mutants in this world, and something needs to be done. So he puts on the helmet, he gets away, and then he unleashes miracle after miracle of magnetism. Because again, the helmet's main power is that it lets him tap into Silver Age Magneto. It's really awesome. The Avengers and the X-Men are confronting each other, because again, you gotta meet up immediately after you lose somebody. And Magneto just whisks Captain America and the X-Men away on waves of pure magnetic force. He doesn't just pull them away super fast, which is what that implies. He he just grabs them. Yeah, he teleports them. How do you teleport someone with magnetism? I don't know, but the Silver Age does. There's probably a way. Magnetism is a versatile stuff. And again, someday we're going to get Dave on to actually legitimate science no prize his way through the miracles of magnetism. Yes, a friend of ours. We we think may be able to do this. Yeah. Now, it's, I, I kind of like what he does here because he's brought the X-Men to him because, you know, they're his bros, but he's brought Captain America to him because he's having this moral crisis. He being Ma- Magneto, not Captain America. Captain America is fairly morally resolved in this series. Yeah, he's not sure whether now that he has the power to fix people's minds and make them not hate mutants or anybody, whether it's right to do it. And he describes Captain America as he brings him as perhaps the most honorable man on the entire planet, which... Yeah, okay, I believe it. Even if he makes really inappropriate Hitler comparisons? Well, and he does call the Russians the Reds and stuff like that, but you know, it was It was the Cold War. A lot of people said some really regrettable things. And so Captain America answers as you would expect him to. A man should be free to make up his own mind, have his own thoughts, even if that man is a bigot. You tell it, Steve, you tell it. 
And Magneto's like, okay, you know what? Screw this. That's not what I wanted to hear. I'm just going to use my helmet on you and erase all your anti-mutant prejudice, and then we'll see what you say. And Captain America says, no, sorry, same deal. This isn't actually born from bigotry. It's born from the fact that mind control is really, really unethical. I guess unless you're using it to evacuate a Kmart. No, it isn't possible. I've always believed that all humans secretly hated mutants. But you don't have any anti-mutant feelings. You never did. You have shamed me, Captain. I now realize that man and mutant must begin trusting each other if we are ever to achieve a peaceful coexistence. Perhaps... I can begin that trust now by surrendering myself to you. See, this specifically is why I dislike this series, or this is one aspect of why I dislike this series, because we've seen Magneto struggle with this and have this revelation. This was him and Lee Forrester talking about consent on Octopusheim. This was him dealing with Tom and Sharon at the Xavier School. Magneto has thought about this stuff. He's talked about this stuff and he's had this moment before. Like the Magneto we see in this series is a Magneto who largely ignores years of really carefully built and really credible characterization. And that really bothers me. Yeah. And I mean, part of that may just be that we're seeing people write Magneto who typically don't, which is to say people who are not Chris Claremont. And they're not doing it well. And I think this is also hurt by the fact that we have had a writer switch, you know, between the second to last and last issues. And so when you're trying to do that kind of a course correction that quickly, it's hard to do it very elegantly. And I think that's part of what this scene in particular suffers from. This turn is weird, but I don't think it would have worked better if they'd made him a villain. Like, I think it's just not an effective plot line. There's no satisfying way to wrap it up that doesn't involve really massively breaking from the established characterization of Magneto. Yeah, well, where we do go from here now that Magneto's turned himself in is to Paris, where we have an international tribunal judging Magneto. Basically exactly like happened in X-Men 200. The framing narration from a newscaster is even extremely reminiscent of it. We have the same defense lawyer, that being Gabriel Haller. We have the same prosecutor, that being James Jaspers. Whoa, 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 whoa. I was kind of under the impression that if you tried to brain a helpless individual with a rock while yelling hate speech during a trial, you at the very least were asked politely not to return to the same courthouse. Well, as it turns out, they brought James Jaspers back anyway. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you let James Jasper? Like, see, this is so weird. And there's even a panel that's actually recycled straight from 200 where someone's with the, the die mutant scum sign. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, to have this direct a reference to a previous scene and to essentially redo that scene. But one thing that is different here is instead of sort of going through the ethics of Magneto's history, whether he's morally culpable for things he did before he was reborn, with this, Magneto's entire defense rests on the fact that he is a sovereign entity, or at least he is the uniformed military of a sovereign nation, that being mutants, that never agreed to the Geneva Conventions, and therefore the international community has no sway over him and cannot judge him. On one hand, that's kind of a cool twist. On the other hand, and with the qualifier that I'm not a lawyer and again, no good advice, blah, blah, blah. Not even a maritime lawyer. Not even a maritime lawyer. Not even a make-believe maritime lawyer. I have never even pretended to prosecute Captain Hook. Mm-hmm. I am less qualified than Michael Bluth. Bucket list. I keep coming back. Bucket God, list. God, that's an appalling thing to say. Anyway, I think this is iffy because mutants aren't a nation. They are a group of individuals who've retained citizenship in their nations of birth. There are ones who are expatriates, but as far as I can tell, nationality and citizenship at this point in time applies to mutants the same way it would to baseline humans. Now, that's going to change later on with the eventual reestablishment, not the initial establishment of the nation of Genosha, and even more, much, much, much later during Dark Reign when the nation of Utopia is formed. And at those points, Magneto would actually be making a pretty good case, but I'm pretty sure that at this point in time, it wouldn't hold up. And hopefully alongside the myriad maritime lawyers in our listener base, we've got some folks who can weigh in more soundly on this. But yeah, this strikes me as a really, really bogus defense. Yeah. And in fact, it doesn't seem to be working too well, but part of that seems to be that the head judge, so there's like one head judge and then there's sort of the mini judges. Well, he's the head when they all form up into the giant judge who makes the final decision. I'm pretty sure that's how international courts work. Oh, uh, you're probably right. Yeah, Um, it's basically a Voltron thing. But the head judge is clearly biased against Magneto. He's shutting down all of Gabriel Haller's objections. He's letting James Jaspers do whatever he wants. And so when court lets out for the day, Magneto is concerned. And eventually he figures out what he thinks is going on. What 
Magneto decides, the conclusion towards which he dives is that clearly this judge is a mutant. Well, specifically a mutant that is a radical who's trying to set Magneto up as a martyr to start a war between humans and mutants. Wouldn't it make much, much more sense if he were just a bigoted human? Well, like that seems fairly obvious to me. And Magneto feels that humans are on the whole bigoted enough and that bigotry is prevalent enough among the human population to justify a mass mind control. So it kind of seems like that should be where he goes first. In fact, it is not to the point where he even sends Captain Marvel. He asks a favor and sends her to go retrieve Liko, who's one of the mutants that he met, who's the mutant detector that found him, to confirm whether this judge is a mutant and to reveal him as such if so, and thus show that the trial is a sham. Unfortunately, Captain Marvel arrives in Singapore to discover that the mutants who Magneto met with have been slaughtered. Yeah, there are only a couple left. Now, Magneto has telepathically tagged along with Captain Marvel, magnetically, I'm gonna say? I think magnets are involved. And sees as well that his helmet is still there and still intact. That'll be a big deal in just a moment. Well, and Captain Marvel heads back and decides to do some more snooping around. And what she discovers is that, no, in fact, yeah, the judge is just a radical anti-mutant bigot. Oops. In fact, he is trying to start a war between humans and mutants, specifically because he thinks that mutants are still weak enough that humans could win, that if any more time passes, mutants will continue to grow in power and take out humanity. I mean, except for that last part, he is probably right. Mutants are at this point scattered, and a large number of them have been wiped out in the massacre, so they're probably at their weakest point right now. Yeah, so the trial resumes, and Magneto's like, well, I know what I have to do. The fact is, regardless of what this guy's motivation was, if I die, there's going to be a war. We're going to see mutants just die by the droves, and it's going to be all my fault. I'm not going to rewrite the ethics of humanity, but I need to rewrite the ethics of this head judge. I need to remove his anti-mutant bigotry so that this trial goes the way it needs to go and avoids a great deal of bloodshed. The next day at the trial, there is a fortuitous power outage. Magneto uses that time to head to the bathroom to retrieve his helmet, which he has summoned from Singapore. It's been going for a long time, and it finally makes it there. That's interesting. Breaks in through the bathroom window, the Beatles wrote a song about it, it's great. You think that's what they were actually writing about? I'm positive. Like years ahead of time, or maybe this was inspired by it? Hard to say. Maybe it's a time loop. It could be. It's like Shatterstar and Longshot. And so he uses his helmet from the bathroom and changes the judge's brain so that he's not prejudiced, and then destroys the helmet to destroy the evidence, and goes right back out there into the trial, where the verdict is rendered. And the verdict is in Magneto's favor. Not only does the head judge vote in his favor, but the other judges, once they have devoltroned, which presumably they were doing in their chambers during the power outage, also support this. They're also on Magneto's side. And Magneto, because he is not the brightest crayon in the box in this issue, finds himself wondering if maybe the head judge wasn't bigoted after all. Maybe it was just like Captain America and he changed his mind, but he got the same verdict he would have otherwise. And that's where the series kind of dies for me, because this existential crisis makes absolutely no goddamn sense. It is directly contradicted by the scene where Captain Marvel saw the judge talking to the mini-judge. And that's weird, and that's the thing with this entire issue number four. Now, I mentioned that I will in fact get behind this series. I will mainly get behind issues one through three, just because issue four seems like it could have stood to have been edited maybe through a couple more passes. There are things that contradict each other, there are characters acting out of character. It just doesn't seem to fit. And that's a shame, because there's a lot of good material, a lot of really good fight scenes, a lot of focusing on interesting characters that comes before. So it's a shame that it wraps up in a way that doesn't really seem of a kind with the preceding issues. Yeah, this is messy. And I mean, that's what happens when you get a last minute rewrite. But it also raises a really important question for me, which is whether it would have worked better with the original plot if Magneto had, in fact, made a heel turn at this point. That's a really good question. I mean, I think it certainly would have been a more compelling series. But as far as where Magneto had been going in the main continuity, you know, that's kind of a different story. Magneto does eventually become a villain again, yes, but that's not for a couple more years. That's not until he goes through a lot of really bad stuff, being the headmaster of the school, sees himself lose a bunch of his students and then lose respect for him and ends up eventually saying screw it and running the Hellfire Club. So here's the thing with that change. I think it's iffy, and I think even the turn from Grey King of the Hellfire Club, which is what he becomes, to full-on villain, is really poorly handled. This, I think, is exponentially worse. And the reason for that is, again, plausibility. 
Magneto's a character who Claremont has spent the last several years building up very systematically and very realistically as a character who is really actively questioning the fundamental underpinnings of his previous life and his previous career as one who has really dedicated himself genuinely and as far as I can tell sincerely to doing the right thing and trying to live by Xavier's standards. The idea that he would question this in light of a massive anti-mutant action, I would maybe buy. The idea that he would compromise those ideals because he found some cool old toys of his? Fuck no. No, that is bullshit. And it's a really, really, really flimsy rationale. You know, when Magneto goes villain, he rarely does it well, and it's really disappointing because there are ways to do that right. And they just almost never get explored. It feels like half the time it's because someone just wants to write a story with Magneto as the villain. So it's like, well, you know, we'll come up with some kind of flimsy rationalization and he'll just go evil. Zorn is obviously the most egregious example of this and has since been retconned away. But it's happened again and again. And it frustrates me so much because he's a character who deserves better. And that's one thing I've really been enjoying about his turn in recent Marvel, like in the Cullen Bunn series since he joined up with Cyclops a few years back, is him as that morally gray, mostly a good guy, but using kind of dark methods to accomplish his good ends. That's the Magneto I love the most. Yeah, Magneto's entire life, if it has a theme, if it has a central conflict, is a struggle between ends and means and the question of whether the ends justify the means. Where he sits on that scale How hard he pushes in either direction is fascinating. But if you lose track of that central conflict, you've lost track of Magneto as a character. So you talked of the struggle between ends and means, and we have a struggle between questions and answers. And I think they're kind of working in concert. So Nate Gray asked on the comments of our blog. Really? Nate Gray, first of all, your shirts are amazing. Yeah. Never change. We love Keep the 90s club scene alive, Nate Gray. Nate Gray says, I too have been going through and trying to read all the X-related comics for the past few years, and I'm eagerly awaiting Excalibur, as I've only read bits and pieces. Oh man, you are in for such a treat. However, I find that I can read through the main series rather quickly, but the events, guest appearances, and other non-X comics and other team books that happen to have X characters tend to bog me down. How do you go about deciding what to read outside of the regular series run? I imagine this is going to get more difficult as time goes on and the X characters start appearing everywhere. I'm looking at you, Wolverine. You are correct, and the answer is that it's not an exact science. Where we choose to draw the line as readers is largely, largely informed by our own interests. I mean, I'm looking at, at Secret Wars and that the titles we're getting outside of the ones we're reviewing. And the biggest deciding factors in those are whether they're about characters who we like and follow or whether they're by creative teams who we like. And honestly, those tend to be the grounds by which I make those choices elsewhere. I will often read X-Men tie-ins if they're there, where I won't read others. I'll often read Daredevil tie-ins. For us, as far as how we define X-Men and material to cover, that's definitely a factor. I mean, we've talked about this before, about how we have some fairly objective definitions for what makes an X-Book, but ultimately the cutoff is a matter of our judgment and taste. You know, in choosing that and in drawing that line, we tend to rely pretty heavily on sources like marvel.wikia.com and uncannyxmen.net that are aggregators of information and data about series. This is fantastically easy to do. I mean, it's still time consuming, but there's a ton out there if you're looking at already released comics. Like there are people who have spent years cataloging how all of these books connect together and having that means that A, it's a lot less important to have read every single comic in a crossover if you're covering it. And B, it's a lot easier to choose which ones your time and focus will be best spent on. But really, I think the best thing you can do is just talk to other people who are super into comics, get their opinions on what tie-ins work and what tie-ins don't. Like if the X-Men show up in an issue of, say, Punisher, then talk to a Punisher fan and say, hey, was that a cool storyline? Should I read it? Ultimately... Also, keep in mind why you're doing what you're doing. Now, for us, reading a lot of X books and X tie-ins and being really thorough is literally our job. If you are doing it for fun, look at what's going to make you happiest. Are you someone who really likes that sense of completion, who really likes having read everything in the crossover and knowing the order they go in? Great. You should do that. If not, look through summaries and pick and choose the ones that you think you're going to get the most out of personally. Now, my answer to this in terms of current and future events and books is a little bit different because obviously you can't really go to databases for those, or at least not as immediately. For that stuff, I tend to lean pretty heavily on critics' recommendations and on the recommendations of some of my good friends who read comics different from the ones that I do. I'll have a core set of books that I follow, and then I'll occasionally expand outward from that based on reviews or discussion following the release of an issue, or based on the recommendations of the guy we buy our comics from, because he's great, he knows our taste really well, and he keeps really well abreast of current books. This is a place where having a really good relationship with your local comic shop can serve you really well if you've got a good one. 
or if not, cultivating a community of current readers and reviewers online. Social media is awesome for this too. If you follow a handful of Tumblrs that follow and, and blog cool stuff from current comics and you don't mind occasional spoilers, you can get a lot of brief and neat glimpses into what's out there. So next up, Jean Grey Hot asks, also in the blog comments, I was rereading Astonishing X-Men and it brought up some questions for me about Kitty's phasing. I always assumed she was all solid or all not, but clearly she must be able to selectively phase in order to go through walls but not sink through the floor at the same time. When she's going through solid matter, it appears that she can control the rate, so it's effectively like levitating. The trickiest thing would seem to be as in the beginning of Astonishing when she comes up through the floor. Do you think she's standing on a ladder? Or would it be that once she's in solid matter, she's able to move herself up so she could jump up and reach the ceiling or go up through the wall and be fine? I guess it's tricky to think too hard about Kitty's powers because if she can float through rock because she's doing some kind of molecular magic, why couldn't she do the same with the molecules of the air and fly? So, in general, her powers do tend to be kind of inconsistent, like most powers that mess with physics and comics. But there are some commonalities. So, you asked whether Kitty can fly or not, or why she can't fly, and in fact, she sort of can. She can walk on air if she concentrates really hard. And I think this has a lot to do with how she doesn't fall through the ground when she phases, which is that, basically, her molecules... They're far enough apart to go through certain solid objects, but she can make it so that they're not all, so that she can walk on air by having her molecules on air molecules, I guess. It's not really ever very well explained, but we have seen definitely that she can control her elevation, she can control how she interacts with both solid surfaces and the air itself. I'll say my understanding, and this is a very, very basic and not necessarily entirely accurate understanding, is that... The way Kitty's powers work is kind of based on a really rudimentary and kind of basic misunderstanding about, you know, how molecules work. The idea that because the majority of space is basically empty, that there's nothing going on that you could just, you know, move directly through it. This is also how the flash vibrates through solid objects. That's not really the case and it's not really how it works. And what that basically means ultimately is that Kitty's powers, like a lot of other powers, like Cyclops's powers, ultimately come down to the rule of cool. If it's plot relevant, and if it's sort of hand-wavable, she can probably do it. This podcast is entirely listener-supported by our Patreon subscribers, and some of those tiers of support come with a number of special prizes. And one of those is thanks on the podcast from a number of fictional characters, including several supervillains. So I believe I am turning this over today to a morally gray magneto. I am the master of magnetism. I have brought the world to its knees on more than one occasion. Why now do I hesitate? With my recovered helmet's hand-wavy Silver Age technology and the combined psychic might of Dean and Addie Burowl, I could eradicate anti-mutant prejudice worldwide in an instant. And yet, Doug Fisher, you are perhaps the most honorable man on the entire planet. What would you do? Normally this is the part where I would go into the outro, but I'm not going to this time because I want to take a minute to tell you guys about something really awesome that just recently got announced that we're part of, and that is the Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts. Yeah, this is going to be a podcast crossover. It's going to be nine parts across nine different podcasts where different hosts from different shows all show up on each other's shows, thanks to, of course, The Beyonder. Right. Now, this launches on October 29th with Fan Bros. Again, it's going to take you through nine episodes, concluding with our episode on November 29th. For more information, follow SCOI Podcasts on Twitter or secretconvergence.tumblr.com. We'll also stick some links in them. As mentioned, we've been talking about this a lot on the blog. It's really, really cool. Like, I mean, when we say nine podcast crossover, like this is massive. This has actually been in the works since mid-April. It started out as sort of a casual Twitter conversation that then sort of turned into an email thread and has now become this amazing, spectacular behemoth. We're going to be talking about that and talking it up a lot in the next few weeks. So be prepared. Meanwhile, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. Special thanks to Steve Morris for a last-minute assist on this episode's cold open. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, video reviews, and much, much more. Our show is completely listener-supported and ad-free and is made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, Wolverine saves human evolution and Warlock meets his green and purple match. As we check out 1987's X-Men and New Mutants annuals.
Captain Hook. Judge, won't you throw the book? 